Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome once again, wherever you are in our great country, and it is a great country, or around the world. This is, as you heard, Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel. Always excited to be with you, and we have actually a second repeat guest, and that shows how much esteem I have for this man, because, uh, uh, my goodness sakes, Tom Campbell just has done it all. So we're going to discuss issues. We've done it before. Actually, we had him back on our show on May, May 24th of 2019, so it's about a year later, uh, and a lot has happened, and this is a man who just has been there. Uh, he has just an amazing background. He, it's, it's really intimidating to hear the credentials that this fellow has. Uh, he was born and raised in Chicago, went to the University of Chicago, got a bachelor's, a master's, and a Ph.D. in economics. Hey, not bad. And then went to Harvard Law School, graduated cum laude. Again, my goodness, these things don't just happen. And then went on to be a law clerk, among other things, for Justice Byron White at the uh, United States Supreme Court. So he is focused as as well he might, as well we all should, uh, of academic work is to apply economics to legal principles, to legal uh, legal issues. And, and that's just so essential, that invisible hand, as we hear here on All Rise a great deal, that invisible hand of economics is always with us. It's always a factor, not always the deciding factor by any means, but, but certainly is a factor. Okay, then he ends up in San Jose, California, where he is a five-term member of Congress uh, from 1989 to 93, and then again from 1990 to 2001. What did this slacker do between 1993 and 1995? Oh, he was a state senator from California. So uh, he is, in fact, just a, just a, a fantastic person. A law professor then at Stanford University. Uh, prior to that, that was 83 to 87. So I've got that one a little bit backwards. But then showing his credentials was the dean of the Haas School of Business at the University of California, then was the dean of the law school at Chapman University. Uh, my other repeat guest was Jim Doty, the former president of Chapman University. And I'm a fan of that institution uh, and is a professor of law right now and a professor of economics. So again, Tom, thank you for being with us, Congressman, Professor. My goodness, I run out of titles, but but welcome. And fill in a few more blanks, if you would, because, and by the way, I have not issued your greatest qualification, and that is that he is married to Suzanne, and he has actually taught with his wife, Suzanne, in Africa on seven voluntary occasions. So we have a lot to talk about, but in the meantime, Tom Campbell, welcome to All Rise once again. My joy. Thank you for having me on, Judge Jim, and I want to congratulate you on uh, your announcement for the candidacy for President of the United States on the Libertarian ticket. Uh, I, I'm just thrilled for our country that somebody of your caliber is is putting himself forward, at, particularly at a time when uh, limited government is so important because so much of our focus is on expanded government. There needs to be a voice 
of uh, sense on the other side. And I understand that the uh, Libertarian Party will nominate at a convention uh, in May, at the end of May, and that uh, you and uh, a former candidate for governor of New York, Mr. Larry Sharp, will be running as a ticket, uh, uh, the gray Sharp ticket, uh, for the Libertarian nomination. And if you succeed on May 30th, I am so anxious to see you participate in the presidential debates. That's an issue where we should spend just a little bit of time, perhaps. Now we're, you're in charge of the show, of course. You tell us, when, tell me when, but uh, to make sure that the American people, the public, have access to more than the established two uh, duopolist political parties' a point of view. Um, the libertarian candidate should be in the presidential debates. And uh, I know that when you ran for vice president, with uh, Governor Gary Johnson uh, for the on the Libertarian side, you were excluded from the debates by the Presidential Debate Commission, and that was harmful to the American public. It was a system set up to exclude anybody but the Democrat and Republican parties, and I thought that was to our great detriment. So instead, our country is going to have a, a a brilliant, insightful, limited government Libertarian candidate. And just to close this off for your listeners, I'm sure they know about you, Judge Gray, but if, if they don't, here's a man who, the United States Navy veteran, uh, Peace Corps veteran, um, judge on the, on the uh, California uh, Superior Court, uh, private practice of law, and now the uh, mediator and arbitrator, uh, trying to bring people together in private solutions to problems um, rather than uh, having to uh, go to government for for answers. So I've known Judge Gray for many, many years and have the highest admiration for him. I hope Tom, you become president, Jim. Tom, Tom, thank you. Um, you you've covered a lot. And, and uh, uh, one thing about being a candidate is you have to lose a little bit of your humility and talk about yourself a bit. The other is you have to be willing to go to people and ask them for money and for support. But you mentioned the debates. It, it's, in my view, and this isn't meant to be personal per se it's it's un-american not to have uh, extra voices heard and the criterion used to be when the league of women voters was in charge of the presidential debates the criterion was if you're on enough ballots in enough states technically to win the presidency technically to have uh, gotten enough electoral college votes your voice should be heard and uh, so we brought a lawsuit as you know in 2012 when i did run with governor gary johnson uh, in order to require the so-called commission on presidential debates which by the way there are 10 commissioners five of them high-ranking Republicans, five of them high-ranking Democrats, and they literally have in their their reason for being, their, their, their statement, that we were intended, this is a bipartisan commission to get the word out to the, Repub, the Republican and the Democratic candidates. So we actually had on All Rise here a fellow named Bruce Fine, who was a constitutional lawyer back in the Washington, D.C. area. That was uh, June 21st, 2019. We talked a little bit more about that. But uh, it is essential because if you don't have that third voice, people will not talk about issues. Uh, they will not talk about 
are failing schools in so many of our schools around the country. They won't talk about alternatives to the healthcare system and, and everything, that alternatives that really do work and have worked for decades in our country that is brought about in the private sector. So again, thank you for that. And I, we certainly agree on many things and, and we don't agree on others. But, but let me just ask you, are we in martial law? This this coronavirus is serious, without any question. But you you just you have to understand that you you can't cure or end a pandemic by killing our economy. And, and in my view, Tom, the the discussion has not even included a balance where you're going to cause a great deal of damage by having millions of people lose their jobs, you know, thousands of businesses going out of business, uh, and it's not even a part of the equation, not even a part of the decision. Can, can you explain, or what, what's your view, Tom Campbell, as to why we have overdone the killing of our economy, because there's going to literally be hell to pay with regard to uh, uh, shutting down our economy? There's two aspects to your question, one the constitutional and the other the economic. Um, and uh, what, and then, of course, the most important aspect is medical, as to which I am not uh, uh, competent to, to opine. Nevertheless, I'm going to start with a, a strong suggestion on the medical side. If the medical professionals tell us that the virus is so far spread in our society that we cannot contain it, any way other than by social distancing, uh, then you have the exercise of the state's police powers to the maximum. And for your listeners, I know many of whom are constitutionalists, it's a very important uh, uh, issue that states have reserved all rights not explicitly given to the federal government, uh, reserved to the states or to the people thereof. That's the Tenth Amendment. So we are testing the outer limits now of the state's police powers. And the premise is that only by uh, enforcing a shutdown of the economy uh, through social distancing and the interruption of normal means of commerce um, can we prevent um, as, as many as millions of, uh, of deaths. And that number of millions came from the, uh, the uh, National Institutes of Health, Dr. Fauci, who has become a uh, a highly regarded spokesperson on this on this issue. Once once we have gone to the level of uh, no new infections or a significant drop to almost no new infections, when we can go back to limiting the spread of the virus by tracing who has the virus and with whom that person came in contact. It's not that long ago when we were attempting that. In January, that was what we were doing. And um, other countries, uh, Austria, for example, has now successfully gone to this method. You then can end the social distancing and return to a more targeted approach that does not intrude on individual liberty uh, by, by as much at all. So uh, a, a state police power, at the minimum, enables the state to quarantine somebody with a contagious disease. That's understood from the time of the founders, and we have done that with tuberculosis and with um, uh, uh, other, other, other pandemics that we have suffered in our country. What's unusual this time is because we have gone beyond the ability to contain it just by identification. We have the maximum of the police power. Uh, lastly, you said, isn't there a trade-off? And yes, there is. I want to say that you're, you're absolutely right. The trade-off 
is particularly powerful because without a vibrant economy, we will not innovate, and it may not be this uh, in time for this uh, crisis, but there will be others, and innovation, development of vaccines, development of therapies, development of alternative methods of um, uh, helping people uh, recover. We've, we, we, for that, you need a vibrant, uh, functioning economy, and the free market system uh, works better than any other system humankind has ever developed for innovation, um, and that's what we need to deal with the, the next health crisis. So that's where we are now and why we have state police powers at the maximum. I heard, and I'll, I'll attribute this to a sit-and-sleep company, which is in Southern California. It sells mattresses. I think it was one of their managers who was lamenting that, look, we are not deemed to be an essential business, so we have been ordered to close our doors, to, sh- to close shop. But you can go to Costco, which is, you know, the box stores, and they are essential, and so people can wander in Costco and they can buy mattresses. So the government, in effect, is helping my competitor and closing me down. And it would seem to me, Tom, that one of the factors uh, that that we're omitting here in the equation is allow, for example, sit and sleep to advertise. Hey, we're going to disinfect our stores uh, every 30 minutes. Uh, We're going to have distancing. We'll only allow three people in the store at a time and we'll stay 10 feet away, whatever it is that they decide to do. And then, Tom Campbell, you and I as adults can make a decision as to, okay, I need a mattress. Is it worth it to me to go to the store? Uh, Oh, look, they're disinfecting And, and let adults make those decisions instead of this meat cleaver approach with the government uh, closing people down. Uh, It's just not a part of the discussion under a libertarian government. It certainly would be. I think that's one of the huge benefits you're going to bring to the presidential campaign, if, and I should say, when you are the nominee of the Libertarian Party, because it is a question of balance, and you're right, neither the Democratic nor the Republican nominee is likely to raise that question of balance. Indeed, there's something else about you, Judge, if you, if you don't mind my giving a direct compliment over the, over the air, but I, it's, really, it's really due. You, you have courage. You, you have courage. When you were a sitting Superior Court judge, you reached the conclusion that the uh, drug uh, policies of the United States and of the state of California uh, were counterproductive, uh, that they were actually creating more drug use, drug dependency, and the social pathologies associated with it uh, than uh, if we went to a controlled use uh, approach uh, where individuals were able to get the drugs to which they had been addicted uh, under uh, controlled circumstances. And for a sitting judge to say that took a ton of courage. In, in this instance, the courage is going to be any politician who suggests anything short of the maximum shutdown is putting herself or himself at risk that if there is any return, any spike, the opponent will quote that uh, uh, that candidate and blame that candidate. So you have to have some political courage to to state what no one else is. Otherwise, the the lowest common denominator will prevail, and that is don't risk standing up from the crowd. If you say maximum uh, uh, government activity to uh, con- prevent the spread of the virus, you will never be criticized uh, because of the loss to the economy. If, however, you say, let's open up a little bit and there is a spike, uh, your political future is, is very much diminished. So I compliment you for, for saying that. 
Well, and, and thank you, Tom. And, and by the way, that was 1992 that I held a press conference saying our nation's policy of drug prohibition was not working. And you can tell my prognostication abilities because I did say to anyone that would hear me at that time, by the year 2000, we will have a materially different drug policy in our country. And boy, was I wrong on that uh, anticipation. But, but you, you, you also put your, put your finger on politics that if I overdo it and I shelter everybody and close down businesses uh, and then nobody gets sick or it, it is reduced, I'm brilliant and politically I'm going to profit from that. Or if I do all of that and people do get sick, I can at least say, well, I did everything I could, so I'll still politically profit by that. But politicians are not held accountable for bad economic decisions. It's It's... It's something that simply goes with the spirit there, that, that they're protecting themselves but ruining our economy. So let me talk about another agency that I feel is literally and has killed thousands of people in our country, and it's called the FDA, uh, the Federal, what is it, Food and Drug Administration. Uh, they are keeping us from being able to develop vaccines because they have all this bureaucracy and all this slow procedures and they're thwarting innovation, like you said, and thwarting the, the ability to find some vaccines. What's your view of that, Tom Campbell? The Food and Drug Administration administers the Safe uh, uh, Food and Cosmetics Act passed by Congress, which requires that no drug be available, be made available in interstate commerce in the United States by federal law unless it is proven to be safe and effective for the uh, therapy intended. The safe and effective phrase is in the statute, and it's, it's wrong. What we should say is, if we wish to be protective, and I believe that there are appropriate steps to, to take for a government uh, to be protective, uh, if, if a therapy is proposed and it has been proven to be safe, whether or not it is effective should be left up to the individual patient, the individual adult. There are some people who believe in holistic medicine. There are some people who practice uh, Eastern uh, medicine. Um, there's some people who practice uh, homeopathic um, medicine. And who is the government to say you may not uh, take the therapy that you believe is most helpful to you? The government does have a role to say we do not want poisons to be put into interstate commerce and marketed, um, particularly to people who may not be uh, aware of the circumstances under which this proposed therapy is actually uh, dangerous to you. But once you've resolved that, let people decide whether it's effective or not. And as a result, Jim, you would have, and, and other countries have shown this, huge expansion of therapies available sooner and uh, with the ability to determine whether or not they are beneficial. Uh, so the FDA, from its origin, had a paternalistic or maternalistic uh, intention in that second criterion, effective. Uh, without that, uh, I think that the, the, the prospect of having a useful drug is much enhanced by allowing individuals uh, to have a much broader spectrum to try. Let me give you an example of that, because we were talking about drug prohibition before, and the most effective 
drug law ever passed in our country, in my opinion, was the Fer the Food and Drug Act of 1903, I think it was, which required, it didn't prohibit anything, it just required accurate labeling. So we as adults could go into uh, a store and see what, what was in these things. And for example, it actually killed the snake oil business. Uh, you know, people back in the, say, 1900, there were two types of groups of people that were drug addicted in our country, among others. But the major ones were, first of all, they called it the soldier's disease, the Civil War fighters that had still received a lot of uh, uh, narcotics for their, for their maladies from the Civil War, and they got themselves addicted, and that was a real problem. But the second one, Tom, and you, you may not even know this, was middle, Midwestern housewives. And why? Because you'd have these snake oil salesmen coming through town and saying, boy, take some of, you know, Uncle Jim's tonic or whatever it was. It'll make you feel a whole lot better. And it did for a while because it was made up of half half cocaine. And when the we got this Food and Drug Act, and I think it was 1903, in the early 1900s, it did not prohibit those snake oils, but it put on the label, hey, this is 50% cocaine. I don't want to take that. And it absolutely decimated these, this whole snake oil industry because of truth, because we were being treated as adults. We would make our decisions as to, uh, as to what was effective or what we wanted to do or not. And treat people as adults is a really good approach, which is not happening with the FDA today. Are you, is that my snake oil topic for the moment, Tom Campbell? I'm delighted to hear that. I was not aware of that history. I know you have invested a substantial amount of your career in studying the drug problem and coming up with very helpful suggested improvements over what we're doing right now. So, no, I did not know that that history. And I might recur just for a second. Imagine having somebody in the presidential debates who's able to, to raise that. Uh, when the Democrat and the Republican are outbidding each other for how we are going to crack down on illegal drugs uh, and say nothing more than put people in jail and, and uh, uh, deal with this as a criminal matter as opposed to a medical matter, who, who but the libertarian will say there is, there is a wise alternative? And, and also, I know, Jim, you have studied with great care the examples in Portugal and the examples in Switzerland where uh, harm reduction uh, with the available uh, resources of government being used to inform people who are addicted how to get off addiction as opposed to putting them in jail uh, and, uh, and making the, the state an ally of therapy rather than criminal incarceration has been hugely successful. Uh, and for your listeners, uh, pardon me for dwelling on it, but it's so important. In 1996, Ross Perot participated in the presidential debates, and Admiral Jim Stockdale participated in the vice presidential debates. And up until the time Ross Perot withdrew, he was actually ahead of President George H.W. Bush and then Governor uh, Bill Clinton uh, in the polls. Um, he withdrew for personal reasons, which uh, I think was unfortunate that he had, that he chose to withdraw. But before he withdrew, because he had been able to present these alternative views, uh, and his big issue, you might remember, was the size of the budget deficit and, and the trade imbalance with, uh, with the rest of the world. Because he was allowed in the debate, America had a choice, and they showed they preferred that choice. They were voting or expressing to pollsters their preference 
uh, for the third-party candidate. So may that be the case with you. Well, and thank you. Uh, Tom, I don't like to spread rumors here on All Rise, and I've never done it before, but I did hear, and and I can't cite it, so maybe I should be quiet, but I did hear that the reason that Ross Perot withdrew for that time was that there was a serious death threat against his family members. Whether that was true or not, I don't know. He did come back thereafter, and he just never quite picked up his momentum. But you, you talk about policy and and this war on drugs and yes I, it, it bothers me enormously but you're aware that at the end of march of 2020 the united states now has indicted the president of venezuela maduro because he's involved with drug sales well he pro- i don't have any information he probably is you know you remember eric honecker in east germany he was as well and i'm convinced that north korea is selling illegal drugs and castro of course did it forever but but we w- even went to war with noriega in panama to to get him out to my knowledge he's still in federal prison but the amount of drugs it doesn't make any difference that you can indict maduro all you want to you could put him in prison the rest of his life assuming he was subject to our jurisdiction and it wouldn't make any difference in the drug trade. It's it's that meat cleaver approach. We in, instead you you bring up, of course, again things that are very important to me. Uh, the president of Holland held a press conference from Amsterdam and said one time that they have decriminalized drugs, which basically means that they're still illegal, but the, the they just do not enforce the laws. And he said that. Holland has only half the marijuana usage in their country per capita as we do in our country, both for adults and for teenagers, and went on to explain why, which is really important. And he said, we have succeeded in making pot boring. That, you know, if you take that glamour out of it, that a lot fewer people use the stuff. So we're just doing it wrong in that regard. The answer is to have a system in our federal government or state government to get accurate information into the marketplace, to get accurate information such that if people advertise snake oils that don't say they don't have cocaine in them and they do, we can first of all uh, prosecute that uh, both criminally and civilly as well as uh, hold them accountable. But if you do just get that honest information into the workplace, uh, into the the society, treat us as adults and let us make those decisions as you say so well as to what is effective or not. And uh, yes, if there's arsenic in the snake oil, uh, that certainly should be prohibited because it's not safe. But effective, that's the answer for uh, for us. Would you indict Maduro? And would we are we going to go to war against Venezuela to bring him to justice, so to speak, Tom Campbell? I do not propose uh, going to war uh, with uh, Venezuela. I think the people of Venezuela are very, very um, uh, in a very sad situation. They are being abused by a tyrant. But the United States cannot go to war with countries simply because they are run by tyrants. Uh, As to harm that Maduro might be doing in the United States, uh, that goes to a separate question. If he is indeed running drugs into the United States, that is contrary to the law of the United States. You and I very well may want to change those laws. You and I believe that there is a better way to reduce the use of drugs in our country. but if a foreign uh, or any individual is engaged in massive violation of our law, they are subject to, to indictment. I think law enforcement cannot be put in the position of, of, of picking and choosing. And that's, and that's, that's where I would, uh, I should say picking and choosing by whole categories. Obviously, all law enforcement decides how you're going to go after the, the big fish or the small fish. 
but that's where I might slightly disagree with, with, with Holland. I think a government should be honest. If the laws are not sensible to enforce, then the laws should be repealed, um, as opposed to saying, well, the law's on the books, but we'll look the other way. Uh, there's one other aspect which is so important in this issue, and that's supply. We've talked about demand, right? The, the, you, would, you would remark the snake oil salespeople were selling to Midwest, um, uh, I think your, your, your face was, uh, homemakers, uh, and, and, uh, uh, and similarly to uh, soldiers um, who had uh, veterans of the Civil War. That's on the demand side. Think about it just for a moment. The government creates profit for drug dealers by making the drug illegal. If the drug were not illegal, um, then free enterprise would come into the production of the drug. The margins would drop, um, and you would certainly have some companies providing drugs. Um, what you would not have is the exceptionally high profit available only to those who are skilled in evading the law. I think that, that's, that's exactly what we have done. We've created a huge profit potential for a class of persons and business people, I suppose. I hate to use the word, but they are running a business. Adept at evading the law. We have given money to people whose skill, whose comparative advantage in the marketplace is, is breaking the law. Uh, we, we, and, and the result is they then have an incentive to, to push the drugs. The incentive to push the drugs comes from there being a huge profit, and that comes from making them illegal. And this is what Portugal has found. As you no, no longer have that profit by keeping the drug illegal, uh, you no longer have the profit incentive uh, to push the drugs. And, and so... Uh, and, and Switzerland has found this as well, particularly Zurich. When you um, make drugs available legitimately to those who are addicted to them, they do not go to the illegal sources anymore. And as a result, there's no profit in the illegal sources, and they stop advertising or pushing or uh, schoolyard advertising, uh, saying it's cool. Uh, and, and, and go talk to this guy over there. He's the one who knows how to get the drugs. All evaporates. And so we, the odd outcome, though you and I would have predicted it, is that drug use has actually dropped in the, in the Zurich example um, when the drugs became more available legitimately uh, and no longer through only through illegal means. Well, Dean Tom Campbell, you certainly convinced me. I was on the fence before, but you, you brought me over. Uh, actually, they don't even pay taxes when they, uh, when they sell drugs illegal for some reason. Uh, it's, it's just we're, we're encouraging <laughs> lawlessness. We're also, by the way, yeah. encouraging juvenile street gangs that they use this as a recruiting tool and the rest. We're going to come back after this really fascinating conversation with former congressman, former dean uh, Tom Campbell after these words. Stick, stick with us and we'll be right back.
The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to All Rise, The Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. After hearing those words, uh, we are here delighted again as my second uh, repeat visitor to have a senator, Congressman Dean Tom Campbell with us and his elucidation. He's one of the most knowledgeable and creative thinkers that really I know. But it, going along with my wife, uh, Grace, Dr. Grace Walker Gray, she asked me to ingest a little bit of silliness into All Rise, uh, which is at least intentional silliness as opposed to sometimes unintentional. But in this coronavirus, I heard that this man was lamenting his husband saying, day two of no sports on TV. I saw a lady sitting on my couch at home and she said she was my wife and she seemed really nice (laughs) very well done that's my attempt here at any rate tom last time you were with us and and uh, on our show and that again was may 24th of 2019 about a year ago you mentioned one of the most sobering things that that i've heard with regard to uh, people in congress politics and what happens and you told me told us it was more than just the two of us, Tom, that you had proposed two resolutions at the same time when I think it was President Clinton was putting troops into fighting in Kosovo. And you said one of them, well, the resolutions called, hey, we as Congress should issue a declaration of war supporting that action. And that's called constitutional. But the second was to withdraw our troops from the area unless a declaration of war was issued. And then you told us how you were approached by various members of Congress. Tell that story again, because it really was sobering. And I'd rather hear it from you than hear it from me. The issue was bombing uh, Yugoslavia during the crisis over Kosovo. Kosovo uh, is part of Yugoslavia, was part of Yugoslavia at the time. Yugoslavia no longer exists, of course, but it still it, it still existed. Uh, and uh, in 1999, the United States uh, bombed Belgrade uh, to bring the uh, tyrant of Yugoslavia, Milosevic, um, to a resolution that he would stop his actions to prevent Kosovo from separating from Yugoslavia. So that was the premise. Uh, There was no direct threat to the United States uh, of any kind. Uh, President uh, uh, Clinton 
uh, went to NATO and said to NATO that this was a threat to stability in Europe. Um, and with no more than his own uh, decision and NATO's resolution agreeing with him, um, he commenced bombing. So that is, in my mind, and any reasonable observer going to war. Uh, so uh, I noted the Constitution gives Congress the power to declare war, not the president, and the War Powers Act as well, which was passed in uh, uh, 1976 in the wait in the uh, 1975. Pardon me, in the uh, uh, wake of the of the uh, Vietnam War. Um, and uh, the War Powers Act says that automatically troops have to come out from a conflict if they've been put in there for over uh, 60 days, unless Congress affirmatively votes uh, to authorize it. So you have both the Constitution and then you have as well this implementing legislation. And that, I said 75, I'm quite sure now I'm wrong. I think it was 74. Um, because President Nixon was in office, it was passed by Congress over President Nixon's uh, veto. So that's the, the premise, and uh, President Clinton was engaged in war, um, and so I introduced two resolutions, as you've described, to put Congress on record, uh, and I was proud to have the support of the American Legion, the veterans of foreign wars, uh, all of whom, and I know you yourself are, are a veteran, Jim, uh, all of whom said, uh, we fight for the Constitution, we put our lives at risk to defend our country and our country's constitution. And that constitution says that the people's representatives have to vote before we are asked to go to war. Uh, well, what happened, and it was, it was sad, was the uh, speaker, Denny Haster, sent his uh, representative to talk with me, his chief of staff at the time, uh, and uh, said, uh, please with, withdraw um, this, this motion. Um, you see, if the war goes well in Yugoslavia, we can take credit because we appropriated uh, money uh, for, the, for this because we appropriated the Defense Department budget and the budget came out, uh, the money came out of the Defense Department. If it goes badly, we can blame President Clinton. He's a Democrat. The House was under Republicans. And that was literally what they told me, Jim. Just that was the, the, the speaker's point of view. Speaker Denny Hastert's uh, representative said to me, we'll get credit uh, if it goes well. We'll avoid blame if it goes badly. So we do not want to go on record. The, major, the uh, minority leader was Dick Gebhardt. And Dick Gebhardt called me up and spoke with me personally. And he said, look, we allowed President Bush to have his war. Uh, President, then there was only one Bush to refer to, H.W. Bush. We allowed him to have his war um, in uh, driving Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. Uh, you ought to allow President Clinton to have to have his. Uh, and uh, I said to him, well, Congress um, is the only authority to declare war. And uh, whether, uh, if you want to use that comparison, uh, President George H.W. Bush obtained the approval of Congress. He, to his great credit, he went to Congress and got approval, and you're asking me to uh, look the other way when President Clinton is going to war without it. And uh, Dick Gephardt's response was, uh, it's uh, sauce for the goose and sauce for the gander. A Democratic president should be allowed to wage war because a Republican was allowed to wage war. So in, in neither an interchange, neither with the Speaker's representative nor with Dick Gephardt himself, were the leaders of the two parties in the House uh, upholding their constitutional obligation. Thomas Campbell. 
you are one of the most honorable people that I know. Not only speaking about it, but doing this. You are you are a pillar in our society. I'm proud to have you here with us on All Rise. And in fact, I will, behind your back now, uh, it's only the two of us, is it not, uh, Tom? Well, maybe more. But I had asked you about a year ago if you would consider running for president as a libertarian, uh, and uh, you declined, and, and you have reasons for that and the rest, but that was our loss. But since that time, you, have, uh, you little mischief maker, you have been involved in forming a new political party in California. Uh, tell, us, tell us about that. Uh, what's it called? How are you doing? What's the, what's the plan? Because it's exciting. You're very generous to give me the chance to speak about it. Here it is, simply put, in California only. I'm only focusing in California. The Democratic Party controls every office statewide. Every office we vote on statewide is held by a Democrat. Uh, the Democratic Party has two-thirds of the state Senate and two-thirds of the state Assembly, and so has effective power of, of a monopoly nature. The Democratic Party can increase taxes without the approval of the voters, uh, without the approval of a single Republican, um, and can put a constitutional amendment on the ballot. And I fear we'll be doing so this November uh, to repeal, in part, Prop 13, the limitation on property taxes in California, and they can do that without getting a single signature. So that's the concern about monopoly government on the Democratic side. I, I'll make one last comment there. Uh, I, I know people of goodwill are in the Democratic Party. I respect the people who are, uh, but I am concerned that there is an over emphasis uh, given to the public employee unions, prison guard unions um, in particular, who are uh, powerful in setting policy in Sacramento, uh, the, uh, and, 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 and whose interest is to uh, not, not always uh, to uh, advance the best interests of the people of the state when they come in conflict with personal, pardon me, not personal, union uh, interest. The same is true for the teachers' union. Uh, we know that uh, many parents want to send their children to schools run under, under charters, and the teachers' union is doing everything it can to stop that. And that's because they can. They have a huge influence in the Democratic Party. On the Republican side, it's become a subsidiary of President Donald Trump. I, I regret that. The Republican Party has a long history of um, advocacy for free trade, for welcoming uh, immigrants, um, for fighting against discrimination. Uh, indeed, we would not have had a Civil Rights Act, but for the hard work of Senator Everett uh, McKinley Dirksen, the Republican leader in the Senate, who uh, was an ally of President Lyndon Johnson in passing the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Well, those traditions are largely um, being ignored as the Republican Party in California has become a subsidiary of President Trump. So that's on the negative side. On the positive side, how about a party that says, let us do everything we can to foster the creation of opportunity, economic opportunity, individual opportunity, um, intrude on people's privacy to a minimum, uh, and let entrepreneurship uh, flourish. I do not envy you if you are a success in business. I want to emulate you and see others emulate you. Those principles, fiscal responsibility and uh, uh, social uh, non-intrusiveness, uh, uh, really, I think, command a majority of Californians. 
Uh, but in the situation I described, the Republican Party seems more and more interested in controlling personal behavior, uh, including such things as, as a woman's uh, right uh, regarding uh, the question of abortion, which has very difficult ramifications, I understand. But the Republican Party doesn't seem to be interested in a compromise, and the Democratic Party neither. Uh, and so let us have a party in California for fiscally responsible people who worry about the size of the government uh, debt, who worry about the level of taxation, the, uh, and, and who worry about the loss of individual freedom in California. And we call that the Common Sense Party, and any listeners who are interested can go to cacommonsense.org. Uh, where are we? we we're at 20,000 uh, re-registrants. We need 67,000 to become an official party. The coronavirus has stopped us temporarily from gathering signatures, um, but as soon as we are able to get, to get back at that, I think we will succeed in obtaining the 67,000 and being a registered party in the state of California. And then uh, is your proposal to run people for office? Uh, to sponsor legislation, like all political parties? Uh, yes, but not right away. It's a little curiosity here, but my first goal, and I think that of the others who have been most involved in creating this party, is to help the more independent-minded candidates who are running under the present system. So we won't be able to have candidates by November uh, because we didn't get 67,000. Uh, but we can help candidates... Of other parties, many districts have two Democrats running for assembly. Some have two Republicans running for assembly. Uh, in each of those instances, the regular party supports one of those two. I think we should support the other one, assuming she or he is otherwise a desirable candidate. We should try to give strength to somebody who's got the courage to stand up to the established parties. So uh, in this cycle... Uh, our goal will be to help the more independent-minded of those candidates in other parties. And uh, as the as the uh, top two system in California has yielded us the opportunity to select, uh, in some instances, only between two members of the same party, well, we will give a choice for the rest of us. Has Thomas Paine joined your party yet? <laughs> you know, if it were Chicago, he might still be registered to vote, so I would uh, in, seek his endorsement. But in California, I don't think Tom Paine is still around. I could be wrong. Okay. You know, I label each of these episodes, and I'm strongly, I'll run it by you, Tom Campbell, but the, the episode that we are now in, I think, should be labeled, Let Us Foster Opportunity. Would that be acceptable to you, sir? Oh, you are so right. It's it's true on a hundred levels. Opportunity for individuals to thrive, opportunity for people to create their own uh, uh, route to, to happiness, to 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 make choices for themselves, um, for, for government to support uh, the, the the freedom of opportunity as opposed to make the decision for us. Absolutely, I I welcome that with with great enthusiasm. One of my true heroes, and I, I don't have a lot, I must confess. Uh, John Kennedy was my hero until I found out about his private life. But one of my heroes, in addition to the one I'm talking to right now of Tom Campbell, as well as your president, Jim Doty, is just, he's a hero as well. But one is Milton Friedman. And he says many things that I quote on All Rise and elsewhere. And one of them is, came to mind while you were talking, you get more of what you subsidize 
and less of what you tax. That makes a lot of sense. You get more of what you subsidize, less of what you tax. And today our government is subsidizing ineffectiveness, uh, laziness, and, uh, and they're taxing success. So guess what we get more of? We get a lot more of people who are entitled. Uh, you get more people that are, that are putting their feet up and not going to work or dig, rolling up their sleeves. And then if you are successful, boy, you get, you get subsidized. Uh, you, you get taxed heavily. Uh, do, you, do you espouse Milton Friedman as well, Tom Campbell? I bet you do. Oh, you're so right, and I'm delighted to hear you raise uh, Dr. Friedman's uh, views. I was singularly honored to be his student at the University of Chicago. He was my faculty advisor in the Ph.D. program in economics. Uh, and let me particularize the, the the point. You get more of what you subsidize and less of what the government taxes. So let us repeal the federal income tax. Let us repeal the federal income tax. The 16th Amendment should be repealed. Um, what do we do when we tax income? We, we depress the creation of income because government depresses uh, activity that it taxes. Where would we raise our money instead? Uh, by taxing consumption. Um, what happens when you depress consumption? You increase investment. Uh, you have uh, such a huge difference between a, a economy that is focused on depressing income from one uh, that encourages income. Uh, and to the extent all taxes are necessary, or at least some taxes are necessary, we should go to what Europe has long relied upon, the value-added tax uh, or a consumption-based tax. The biggest criticism is the consumption-based tax hurts poor people, and the answer to that is you take care of poor people. You provide uh, the minimums, and that would include, to me, housing and medicine and uh, and, and food. Uh, and then you decide to... Uh, have the government put a sales tax on, and that's how you raise your revenue. But it's fundamentally from a freedom point of view. So economics is powerful, but there's also a personal freedom point of view. The federal government knows more about me because of my wife and my filing, income tax filing, than any of my my, my seven brothers and sisters do, um, or my parents when they were still alive uh, do, uh, or my best friends do. Uh, I have to disclose so much about my personal life uh, in, in the form of, uh, for, for, for many examples, but I will choose some not applicable in, in my case necessarily, uh, but children deductions, how many children you have, your medical costs, uh, are, are you paying or receiving alimony, are you paying or receiving child support? Uh, what, what are your sources of income? Do you have any offshore income? Uh, are you investing in, uh, in a, a farm? If so, uh, are you serious about the farm, or is it only a, a hobby? My goodness, the government has no need to know all of that. It intrudes in my privacy. And if, by contrast, they raise their money by a consumption tax, then they would know nothing more than that I chose to buy a box of life cereal uh, and paid seven and a half uh, cents more per dollar as a result. Yes, and if they raise taxes, we'll all be able to see it. It'll all be transparent. If they reduce taxes, of all things, we'd be able to see that as well. Tom, I, I one time saw how much money that the private sector, be it individuals, companies, spend just to prepare their taxes, to keep the records, to, to prepare all of these. It's just overwhelming. And uh, I also am a modestly intelligent person, caring person. I do 
have signed recently my tax return. I tried to read it and understand it. I did not even understand what it was that I was signing. Uh, it's just so complicated, so convoluted. Uh, simplicity as opposed to uh, you know, sim- simplicity instead of uh, simplistic is, is certainly important. But uh, I had never heard it mentioned like you just did. Yes, you get more of what you subsidize, less of what you tax. We're taxing income, and uh, that and that's reducing income, and it's reducing reducing incentives for income. You're, you're brilliant on that. Let me quickly, though, say, again, with Milton Friedman, he had what he called the negative income tax. Uh, I, call it a, I call it a stipend, because uh, I don't like the word negative, but uh, it was of a similar manner. Why would you not go with my stipend or Milton Friedman's uh, negative income tax uh, to, in effect, give a stipend to people that made no money uh, and give them reduced the stipend by 50 cents for every dollar that they made or something, so they'd always have that incentive to earn the extra money. Would that at least be a close second in your mind, Tom Campbell? Your concern is that the federal income tax depresses beneficial economic activity and invades my privacy, invades all of our privacy. Uh, If we move to a consumption tax, then use your stipend approach to take care of the poor. Uh, I understand. What I would suggested just a moment or two ago was the government could take care of the poor by more direct assistance for housing, for food, for medicine. Uh, That, however, does actually involve a, a judgment that those are the most important things that we should be concerned about for poor people. Um, The ratio in which we uh, uh, are concerned about them could be different for different individuals, and each individual should be empowered to make his or her own choice. That's that's the strength of the subsidy idea. I think you, in in your idea, I've had the benefit of studying your idea, uh, in, 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 because I I own your, your your book of collection of your of your uh, 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 statements for liberty, your 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 uh, uh, weekly uh, uh, podcast on on liberty. Uh, and, 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 and what you would say is uh, some, some restrictions so that the money cannot be used for, for drugs. Or I don't know if I'm putting words in your mouth, but I think you also had a restriction that it not be used for alcohol. Um, actually not, but uh, that one thing or other, if people have those problems, we're, we're running out of time. Uh, I uh, recently saw a license plate frame here in California that said, quote, NASA, I need my space. Well, Tom Campbell, you need your space, too, because you're an original thinker, a knowledge and creative thinker, and you are also an honorable man of principle and an honorable man of action. I just salute you. We haven't had enough time because we're we're running out of time now yet again. I'll have to have you back for a third time. But uh, what I what I wanted to do earlier was talk about your volunteer work in Africa. Uh, we'll do that. We'll do that the next time you're on All Rise. But Tom Campbell, thank you for being with us. Thanks for what you are, what you're doing, your insights, and your time. Thanks for being with us, my friend. Thank you. And my time in Africa is nothing compared with the time you gave to help poor people in Costa Rica. So, felicitaciones a usted, amigo mío. So there you have it in two languages right at the end. Tom Campbell, a wonderful man, and and sharing his thoughts with us on All Rise, where we talk about real issues directly, bluntly. If you want to get to more information, go to judgejimgray.com. You can communicate with me there, and I'll respond to you. Uh, You can also then go to the Common Sense Party and help Tom Campbell in that worthy suit. And so 
Come back with us next week or go to the Voice America Network on demand. You can hear any of our past episodes, including May 24, 2019, with Tom Campbell in his first visit. In the meantime, this is Judge Jim Gray saying, life is good. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way.